If you're stressed or depressed, anxious or just need a rest. If you're into your sport and you want to perform at your best. Take a breath, take a breath, take a breath. Hi, and welcome to Take a Breath with Matt and Tim. We're going to continue our tech talks on the beautiful balance of breathing. As a follow-up to last week's episode, the first tech talk, Take a Trip with Oxygen. This one is called The Mysterious Tale of Carbon Dioxide. Yes, uh, carbon dioxide, or CO2 as it's known in the business, it's a gas with a public relations problem. Most people think about CO2 as a waste gas, some kind of nasty kind of byproduct. But we'll talk about the role of a carbon dioxide in breathing and how vital it is and the fact that it's actually our friend. So we're going to talk about the role that carbon dioxide plays in helping to get oxygen in the cells for energy production, without which you're stuffed. You don't make energy and you die. We'll talk about the ins and outs of the role that carbon dioxide plays as the limiting factor in breathing or respiration. And in learning how to breathe correctly, you can, and understanding the role of carbon dioxide, you can make a massive difference to the amount of energy you can produce. And therefore, your vitality, your mental clarity makes a huge difference. But wait, there's more. If you're not already frothing over the prospect of hearing about blood gases, uh, we'll also be talking about the role of uh, carbon dioxide in snoring and apnea, in altitude training, and in uh, breath holding underwater, amongst other things. So you're probably already pulsing with excitement, so we'll get straight into it. Okay, the mysterious tale of carbon dioxide. We mentioned in the first episode that oxygen is picked up by hemoglobin in the blood supply in the alveoli, or the air sacs deep in the lungs, and is released by the same hemoglobin in the arterial blood so that it can get to the cells for energy production, which is the mechanism of breathing, getting oxygen to our cells for energy production via the air that we breathe into our lungs. So in order for that to happen, we discussed that hemoglobin changes from high affinity to oxygen in the lungs to low affinity to oxygen in the arterial blood. Yet it's the same hemoglobin in the same bloodstream, just a different location. So we're talking about the hemoglobin as a train that picks up these molecules of oxygen and transports them. What we're talking about here is how the oxygen actually gets off the train. Why does the oxygen get off the train into your cells? Really what has to happen, there has to be something changes between our lungs and our arterial blood for that hemoglobin to release oxygen or for the oxygen to get off the train. And this process, the change in hemoglobin affinity, is absolutely vital for respiration to do its job to do its job. Without this shift, we would die because you wouldn't get oxygen to your cells. What changes in the bloodstream, in the lung, between the lungs and the arterial blood is the pH of the blood. It goes from 7.45 in the lungs to 7.35 in arterial blood. So that's what seems like a very small shift, but it's a big shift in our bloodstream. And that causes the change in affinity of hemoglobin to oxygen. So the pH we're talking about, that's basically if the body is acidic or more alkaline yep and so seven being neutral 14 being extremely alkaline and zero being extremely acidic the blood becomes 
slightly less alkaline between the lungs and the cells or the arterial blood. And what causes the change in pH? You guessed it. Carbon, carbon dioxide. dioxide. And so in the bloodstream, carbon dioxide, which was a byproduct of energy production, and it's in the bloodstream, we exhale carbon dioxide, goes through the bloodstream initially before it gets to the lungs. In the bloodstream, carbon dioxide combines with water to produce carbonic acid, which lowers the pH from 7.45 to 7.35. It is actually carbon dioxide that's the limiting factor in breathing, not oxygen, because without carbon dioxide, as we said before, you wouldn't get oxygen to the cells for energy production. I bet you didn't know that. Or maybe you did. Maybe you did, particularly if you're a professional working with breathing. Without oxygen, we don't produce energy and we die, as we discuss. But without enough carbon dioxide in our bloodstream, we don't get the oxygen to the cells for energy production in the first place. An example being altitude training. Basically, if they're going to go and do some sort of event at altitude, or they go to altitude to optimize their blood's ability, or the red blood cell count, or the, the ability you know, of their body, basically of their bloodstream, to hold oxygen. So if I do training at altitude, my body becomes, because there's less oxygen in the atmosphere, my body is more efficient at picking up oxygen because my bloodstream changes. I get more red blood cells and more hemoglobin. And I've done some work with some people who run a respiration center in Melbourne. It's all well and good to get the oxygen into your bloodstream, but what you can do, you can increase the effect of altitude training, which it's said it's up to about 3.5% difference it can make in performance, which is fairly significant in professional athletes. But if you learn how to breathe correctly, in other words, if you learn how to deliver that oxygen that's in your bloodstream or that increased oxygen in your bloodstream to your cells for energy production, then you increase the effect of altitude training. So learning how to breathe correctly can increase the effect of altitude training once you get back down to sea level. Interestingly, with regards to the role of carbon dioxide and it being the limiting factor, the respiratory center in the brain, it's in the brain stem, or the part called the hypothalamus that regulates all of our automatic functions. The respiratory center regulates our breathing, so it gets us to breathe more, to breathe less. It actually measures carbon dioxide mostly, more than oxygen, to monitor our respiration or regulate our breathing. For example, if carbon dioxide levels are low and it compromises breathing function there because we're not getting enough oxygen to cells for energy production, the respiratory center will send signals to the body to reduce or stop breathing because we're breathing out too much carbon dioxide. An example might be apnea, sleep apnea. So what happens generally in snoring and sleep apnea is the person is generally snoring. So they're breathing away with their mouth open at night. And when you breathe with your mouth, way too much volume goes in and therefore out. And what happens then is you're losing way too much carbon dioxide. Your CO2 levels drop. The brain perceives it as a threat and says, ah, we need to stop this person breathing or we need to reduce the breathing. So what happens is... So the carbon dioxide builds up. Carbon dioxide gets low, yeah. And if your brain stops your breathing, breathing. Yeah. CO2 levels will build up. So what it will do is with an apnea person, you hear them <laughs> snoring away and then they go dead silent. And that's where the brain has stopped them breathing. And what generally happens then is that after a while... Because you've stopped breathing, CO2 levels get too high because you're still producing energy. So CO2 levels go up and the body will then start them breathing. And what will typically happen is they go, they gasp and they start breathing again. They start snoring again. And then eventually CO2 levels drop. The body stops them breathing and the cycle continues. And so that can happen in a person with bad apnea 40 to 50 times per hour per night. 
per hour. I saw a patient yesterday who just had some sleep studies and he was having episodes of apnea uh, over 30 times per night in, in sleep study. extreme cases, it can be truckloads more. Right. So no wonder they're exhausted. They're waking themselves up frequently, even 30 times a night. Can you imagine having a sleep and waking up 30 times in the night? You'd be stuffed. That's what's going on, and it's a breathing dysfunction that's central to sleep apnea. Conversely, or at the other end of the spectrum, is if CO2 levels get really, really high, the respiratory center will send signals to instigate breathing or start or to increase breathing. An example being if you're underwater. So if you're underwater, you can't breathe. So you can't exhale CO2, and it goes up and up and up and up, and the body will go, whoa, we need to start breathing again, or we need to breathe more rapidly. Eventually, if you stay underwater and you don't get to the top and start breathing, eventually what the body will do is CO2 levels will get that high that it will either take the breath, whether you like it or not, and your lungs fill up with water, or your body will black you out. What will generally happen about 30 seconds after you black out is that you'll gasp. So it's the body's way of saying, we're going to make you breathe whether you like it or not. Unfortunately, whether you take the breath underwater or you black out, then gasp, your lungs fill with the water, and then... If someone doesn't get you to the top pretty quickly, you're going to have problems. Yeah. We can discuss that in much more detail in later episodes, but that's the really fundamental role of carbon dioxide and breathing in breath hold work and free diving. And you teach this in your breathing for surfing workshops, yeah? Yeah, so we do workshops teaching surfers how to hold their breath for longer and also sports people how to breathe more efficiently, which is a bit different. It's it's a combination of breath holds and performance breathing. We actually teach them the role of carbon dioxide. And the importance of that is if when they first go underwater, we have this big fear about, oh my God, I'm uncomfortable. It's important for them to understand you're not actually dying when you're, that happens. You're not running out of oxygen. No. Your brain's just saying CO2 levels are high and I don't like it. Yeah. You can learn to train your body to handle higher and higher levels of CO2. And it's not necessarily deleterious to your health. It's like training your body physiologically to get fitter. Over time, you get fitter and fitter and fitter, and it actually is really good for you. They train themselves to handle CO2 more and more and more. In that stage, that initial stage of discomfort, they can relax into it, mm -hmm. in theory. So, as we've discussed, carbon dioxide is not some horrible waste gas that damages our environment. It's actually our friend. And just like the trees, which use carbon dioxide we, like we use oxygen, we need it. The thing about it is, is there are only 0.03% of carbon dioxide in atmospheric air, as opposed to 21% of oxygen, which we discussed in the first episode. We can't get it from the atmosphere. We make it as a byproduct of energy production, and we have to store it. We rely on stores of carbon dioxide in our body to be able to create this pH shift. So those stores come from, one, the bloodstream. So as it's being exhaled, there's CO2 in the bloodstream, but there's a limit amount there. And secondly, there's a reservoir of CO2 stored in our in our lungs at the end of exhalation, known as end tidal CO2. So it's once we've finished exhaling, we shouldn't exhale all the gas out. We have a reservoir called end tidal CO2 or ETCO2. And this reservoir then permeates back into the bloodstream to maintain ideal levels of carbon dioxide in our arterial bloodstream to create the pH shift. The ideal amount in our bloodstream for you techie nerds is about 40 millimeters of mercury of partial pressure of 40 millimeters of mercury of co2 in arterial blood and this partial pressure we're talking about um we're talking about the partial pressure of oxygen in the blood which is measured with an oximeter yep. some people in yep. hospital they might be familiar with uh, putting the probe on your 
finger and it yep. measures your blood gas. So you, the partial pressure of oxygen is usually sitting up sort of 96, 97, 98% yep. oxygen saturation. But Tim, I can't believe you haven't actually mentioned the bore effect. This is okay. your favorite thing, Tim. I know, I get really excited when we talk about the bore effect and or when we talk about the whole process of how we get oxygen to the cells and the mechanism and the role CO2 plays and it's all called the bore effect and as Matt's discovered I love talking about the bore effect. The bore effect is named after Christian Bohr who in 1903 explained this whole mechanism that we've just been discussing. He won a Nobel Prize for it so he's a pretty clever fella and his father Niels Bohr was a Danish physicist who also won a Nobel Prize so pretty clever family. Wouldn't want to have played Scrabble against them or something like that. Now we've discussed the whole mechanism. If we breathe in and out using our nose, not only is the air supply conditioned in the right way as we discussed in the first episode, it will also supply the ideal volume in and therefore out to maintain the ideal end tidal carbon dioxide after exhalation and partial pressure of carbon dioxide in our arterial blood to allow the bore effect to purr along and our body absolutely thrives. We produce energy efficiently, we're vital, everything's just swimming along. If we breathe ideally through the nose, this is according to diagnostic norms, through the nose, in and out, except in emergencies like exercise or if someone startles you, using primarily the diaphragm to drive respiration, with a gentle wave pattern, silent, and eight to 10 breaths a minute, which translates to about 12 to 14,000 times a day, the whole balancing act of the bore effect works beautifully. And our respiratory system's happy, our respiratory center and our brain is happy, and the whole body's happy. Hope you're happy too. Thanks for listening.